Welcome to We're Listening to Podcast, a community where all voices are heard. I'm your host, Rob Cook. Join me for a lighthearted show about the human experience with live conversations, discussions, and interviews of some of the newest to the most established 3P practitioners from all over the world. So no matter if you've known the three principles for years or you're new to Daily Insights, we hope each episode will inspire you to demonstrate a community where all voices are heard. Welcome to today's episode. Lorna Davis transforms the ways leaders operate so they can incorporate social, environmental, and financial priorities into their business performance. She inspires coaches, provokes leaders to use business for good. She runs group workshops, she coaches individuals, and she's a highly sought-after keynote speaker. She also serves on a board of a number of organizations that are committed to having meaningful purpose. She has served as the president of multinational consumer good companies for over 20 plus years. In 2017, where she served as CEO and chairwoman of Danon Wave, now Danon North America, where she established that $6 billion entity as a public benefit corporation and achieved B Corp status in 2018, making it the largest B Corp in the world. She has lived and led businesses in seven countries, including the UK, France, and the USA, and served on the Global Board of Electronix for six years. Learner was based in Shanghai, China for six years, where she was the CEO of the Merch, Danon, and Craft Business. She is now based in New York City, where she works as a coach, speaker, and facilitator. Lorna is passionate about wildlife conservation, particularly the plight of the African rhino. Ladies and gentlemen, oh man, I'm a special, special person today, a beautiful human being and someone you're going to fall in love with too. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Lorna Davis, how are you doing, Lorna? I'm good, Rob, so lovely <laughs> to see you. <laughs> I know, it's so cool to be here with you, um, laughing about switching the tone and coming into it because we were just, just laughing off air about how much you've done and and all the different places your your imprint or uh, your mark has been made um so i think it's going to be best if we just go all the way back we're just going to take it back you know and start with uh little lorner and and move the story as you see fit you know and and i'll see what i can hear but i just want them to fall in love with you like i did when we met so <laughs> ladies and gentlemen lorna davis <laughs> Uh, so funny when you said to me, have I got time for a podcast? I was like, for you, Rob, I say yes first, and then we'll work out all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, my, <laughs> I was just like, like everybody else, I think, like most people in the world. I, no, not like most, but like many, I figured that life was some sort of puzzle that I needed to work out. And that once I had worked it out, then I would be happy. Mm -hmm. So I basically made my way through the world trying to work it out. Um, and I grew up in South Africa and pretty soon I decided that another country was a good place to start. I decided that it was important to be rich enough um, because money seemed to be important 
um and then i decided that power seemed to be important like so i needed to like have a big job because then people would kind of listen to me <laughs> uh or i decided that maybe being thin enough was going to be important because like it seemed that thin was important yeah and i figured that having a good man was important so that kind of was a thing Wait, wait, it's a thing? I'm a good dude? Like, hold on. Wait a minute now. Hold on, Lana. It's still a good thing to have a good dude. You know what I'm saying? I agree. I agree. Okay. okay. But, but, but what, can, what can I tell you? Except that I just kept on kind of moving. And so, <laughs> so I landed up. I mean, I landed up sort of 30 years later uh, having moved internationally 12 times lived in you know lots of different countries including china and france and the uk and now the us i ran big businesses like you know multi-million and multi-billion dollar businesses for 20 years of that i've been married twice and now have another dude who, and i agree with you that you know <laughs> having a good dude is important for me um but but there was somewhere along the line that it really started to sink in <laughs> that this equation that said i just got to get the right thing whatever that is money power job country man whatever it was thinness blondness whatever that there wasn't going to be the prize at the end of that that i hoped for there was certainly, you know, some happiness. There was, I wasn't a bad person. I was kind. I did good things. I had an interesting life. But there was still a sort of interrogation about what that might be. And of course, while I was on that search, and I think, you know, in retrospect, Michael Neal puts it really well when when he, I think he explained this super well that, you know, we start off with this kind of search for material stuff, whatever it is, you know, body, money, power, country, man, woman, whatever. And we realize, well, that's not, there's no cheese down that tunnel. So then we go the psychological <laughs> route, you know, and we go, well, I must be broken, you know, I must have, I must have lost my way yeah. and my brain must be broken. So I must go back. And so I spent many, many years in therapy trying to find the place where the connection must have been twisted mm. because clearly I was broken because otherwise I would have worked it out by now, you know? So that was kind of where I was. And then my big, aha. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> that is. Um, I had been, uh, it's kind of two things happened roughly the same time. So I had been meditating for many years by then, like, you know, six or seven years, many, six or seven years. And I had noticed that I had very familiar trains of thought that might, that might, that would, you know, would occur. And for example, one of them was I was obsessed with um, planning logistics so I would like be meditating and I would be meditate, meditate. And then the thought would pop into my mind. I wonder what time I should go to the airport. And then I would go, oh, meditate, meditate. I know, 
10.30. Meditate, meditate. Maybe 10.45. Meditate, meditate. Should I catch a taxi? Meditate, meditate. Uh, maybe the subway's better. And I started to see a pattern in my thinking that like was curious to me. And then I started to notice that I had a theory that if I got some of these things right, particularly logistics, because I was traveling a lot, that I would be safe. Safe. That was interesting that that was the thing that occurred to me. So then I started to get curious about like what was getting it right. So there were many times when I actually did, quote, get it right. You know, I would get to the airport on time having chosen apparently the right mode of transport, whatever that was. Yeah. <laughs> and the feeling of safety never, never appeared. It was always some sort of relief to have kind of dodged this obstacle course only to be replaced by the next obstacle course. So now I had to get to the gate or I had to get to the destination or I had to get. So I started to see that this was like an endless game that didn't have any prize at the end so that was curious to me and then a friend of mine sent me michael neal's podcast and i will never forget this as long as i live it was a podcast about trains of thought and he said something like if you're feeling bad all it means is that you're on a train of thought that's not taking you anywhere helpful and all you have to do is get off the train and back on the platform and wait for another train. Yeah. And, you know, it was like all of the cliches in the world about insights. It was like this, oh, my goodness me. Yeah. I have been taking my thinking so seriously. And I have been imagining that they're all equally valid, no matter how bad I felt. Yeah. And suddenly this thing seemed so true to me, you know? So then I was like, my, you know, my world stopped in a way. Yeah. And then I had to go and find out. And then, and then that was the beginning. And that was, what is that five years ago now? So that was kind of the beginning of this inquiry and genuinely everything's changed in a way since then. Oh, absolutely. Uh, CTI is one of Michael Neal's programs called Creating the Impossible. And you really come with a no shit goal that's like so far out there, it has to be impossible to create. And you go through the course and, and hence, you know, the creation happens. Uh, but this was probably one of the coolest stories of it. There, there are some amazing ones, but this one was one that was worth people talking about in a sense because of what happened from it. So I, I'll let you shape that, Lorna. But yeah, tell me about that project. So it goes back a bit. So um, when I first I came to New York for the very first time uh, after living in China for six years and uh, in 2012 and maybe six months later, I was walking my dog in Central Park and I saw this guy who was clearly homeless in the sense that he had a beard and he was sitting on a bench and he had one of those big cart things that homeless people in New York have. But written on the side of that cart was um, Eckhart Tolle, The Power of Now. And I presume most people listening to this call will know who Eckhart Tolle is, but if you don't, he's a German spiritual leader, 
thinker, guru, whatever. And I thought, that's weird. Like, that's really weird. Like, it kind of blew my, <laughs> blew my <laughs> assumptions. And so I started to speak to him. And over the months, I became friends with him. And I discovered his story, which was that he had been, uh, as he calls it, an Olympic addict for decades, anything, crack, heroin, marijuana, cigarettes, booze, whatever. And he had had, uh, a, let's call it a moment of grace, enlightenment experience, whatever, to use, to quote him, he had suffered enough um, around about 2000. And he had um, been trying to work out what had happened to him. And uh, a couple of years after that, experience where he you know he'd been completely clean for he's been completely clean for more than 20 years now he discovered Eckhart Tolle and resonated strongly with Eckhart's sort of way of explaining this and so he has been living in Central Park sitting on a bench feeding birds and dogs and talking to people ever since and I uh, I remember this was sort of around the time you know, 2014 or something, a couple of years into my friendship with him, that I, I kind of had this epiphany because at this point I was running this very large business. I was running um, a, a very big company in this country, and I was uh, I was living at an apartment overlooking Central Park, and he was living in Central Park, and I remember thinking his addiction brought him to his knees in the park and my addiction to power money success brought me to my knees on the park same knees same park it doesn't matter what you choose you know he was choosing to find what he was finding through drugs and stuff and i was choosing to find what i was trying to find through my apparently very successful career it was very successful but it depends on how you define success. <laughs> this is successful too. And so um, so when CTI came along, I, I thought, wouldn't it be cool if we could get Eckhart Toller to come to New York, to, to Central Park, to his bench? And I thought, well, there's no chance of that happening. And Given that you don't know Eckhart Tolle. Is that, okay, is that, okay, let's start with that part. <laughs> I don't know Eckhart Tolle. I, I don't know anybody who knows him. Um, and so I thought this would be cool. I don't even particularly resonate with Eckhart Tolle. You know, I, I mean, he's not my guy, right? Um, so then started the program. And this is when I really started to see the the dance because of course I was used to muscling my way to get things done and I wasn't you know it, it works many times but um and I guess there was a way I could have muscled my way here I mean I guess I could have found a way but I did that wasn't the, the spirit but I don't even think it would have been possible if I tried to muscle my way and so um I really saw that it was a it was I genuinely saw that it was a dance with the universe that I was would be wandering along. So, for example, I had decided, as we do, that I am not a writer. You know how we do this thing? Yeah. We say, I am 
I'm yeah, the kind yeah. of person who. I'm, yeah, I'm not a writer either. Yes, definitely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, and I'm, <laughs> you know, I, I look at you. I say stuff like, "Oh, I'm not a fit person like Rob." I mean, we just make up stuff, right? I am. I am not. Yeah. Randomly. So apparently, I'm not a writer. But at some point, it occurred to me that in order to get somebody to know who Armando was, I needed to write something down. Like I needed to be able to say who he was because otherwise you, well, nobody knows what I'm talking about. So I went to my computer and I did a thing that apparently people called writing. You know, I kind of put <laughs> letters together and a story and explained the story. And so then that became the thing that I then started to send to people, which started the ball rolling in a way. So that taught me about how much, am I allowed to swear on this, on this podcast? Absolutely. So it taught me about how much shit I make up about myself and about everybody <laughs> makes up about this else. I am this, I'm not that all made up. Right. So I, for example, discovered that, that I can do whatever I, whatever calls to be done to get something to happen in the world if you're if you're listening to the music kind of thing you know the the music of the universe and then i noticed a couple of other interesting things so of course eckhart didn't fly to new york just to see armando he happened to be here speaking at the beacon theater and so i had got to this point where i had somehow found this person who put me in touch with the person who used to be Eckhart's first <laughs> publisher, who put the proposal to, you know, whatever. And we, we got this plan to meet Eckhart at the, and I say Eckhart as if he's my friend, right? To, to meet Mr. Toller at this, at the Plaza Hotel. And I was too, I didn't want anybody to know, right? So it's still a secret. And he's coming on like the Tuesday, let's say. And I go and see Armando on Saturday and Armando says to me, guess what? Somebody bought me a ticket to go and see Eckhart at the Beacon Theatre. And I remember thinking, fuck, that's my gig. <laughs> like my ego just was like, Whoa. you know, like, Whoa. I'm, I'm, this is grab, grab, grab. And as I, as I, as a thought formed in my head, it was like this little thread of like a, like a, like a, a spider's web that every time my ego tried to grab this project, it was like that, that spider's web started to bend, like that mm -hmm. thread started to bend. As soon as I backed off, and waited to see what would happen next. It was like that thread became solid and clear as it was weird. I mean, it was weird. The whole thing was weird because it was, it was like a nothing that I'd ever experienced before. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, of course it happened. And then what was interesting when it happened to see the two of them. So it's a rainy day. Armando sitting on his bench. I had got my stepson to go and make sure he didn't leave his bench on this particular day. And we're walking through the park and Eckhart starts to walk down the hill and Armando gets up from his bench. And I swear to God, Robert, you know, it was 2018, I guess. It's still 
makes me weep because they just looked at each other as if they knew each other. They didn't speak. They just hugged. They just hugged in the rain. And um, we were all like standard. Eventually at some point, some minutes in, one of us said, oh, I suppose we should take a picture. You know, because it's like, oh, it happened. Picture, you know, we hadn't, we hadn't thought about it. And then the two of them sat together on a bench, on the bench. And uh, I remember um, Armando said to Eckhart something like, I don't know, Eckhart, but the creation used me. And Armando's got the strong Spanish accent. And Eckhart said, yep, yeah, the creation uses me too. And they just sat there companionably looking out at the rain, you know. So it was just, it was huge. It taught me, it taught me, I, I can't tell you how much it taught me about how, how the universe is just dancing with us all the time. And sometimes we block our ears, but other times we're listening to the music, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> So you say success is relative to how a, a person define it. But, I mean, most people would define having a TED Talk as successful. I mean, you have a TED Talk. Yeah, I, I have a TED Talk. And it's interesting because now that I listen back to the TED and the TED Talk's, you know, been seen by a couple million people, and that's good. But when I listen back to it, I see that I made a... I have a misunderstanding that's embedded in that TED talk, mm. which is really interesting for anybody who's interested in the three Ps who's listening to this, which presumably is why they're listening to this. <laughs> so what I effectively say in my TED talk is that the, um, the key to solutions to big problems that, that are kind of impossible to achieve alone is to put yourself out there and encourage other people to join you. And that it's the process of um, declaring goals that are not achievable that actually uh, creates breakthrough and creates collaboration. But what I've seen, and it's that's at some level it's true, but what I've seen is that you don't need to do that. Like that's just one strategy. I realized that I felt alive when I was vocal about doing stuff that I couldn't do alone. And I'm now seeing that I can do that anytime. <laughs> yes. So that's not a it's it's a it's fine, but it's a strategy. I mean, uh, if I were to do that talk now, I would find some way to segue from my innocent misunderstanding. In fact, you know, putting myself in different countries and doing different things that were complicated and difficult, if you try to use your little brain to do them, immediately catapulted me into the flow of life. Yeah. 
And so effectively, my TED Talk encourages people to catapult themselves into the flow of life. I think if I were doing a talk now, I'd tell them, you know, the flow of life's waiting anytime you're ready. You yeah, know? I love so, that. Yeah, yeah. So I think, so now actually, if I... I well, mean, let's do another one. <laughs> let's yeah. just do another one. Yeah. We'll see. Well, thank you for that. So... Here's where we want some of that, that good, good Lorna wisdom, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, the whole community is listening. And if there was anything you wanted to share with them, what would you say? So I guess... Um... I'm not I'm not as um as comfortable yet with the ten minute silences as Elsie Spittle and Dick and <laughs> But um <laughs> I'll tell you uh I'll tell you two things that I'm seeing like right this minute, Rob. Um first of all is I cry like all the time. You know, this is just life, right? <laughs> the first is I've really been seeing lately um, how with me and with my clients, and I saw this first in a, in a supervision session with Fee, that my gratitude for how much this understanding has brought me does not mean that I cannot keep looking for more, for more depth, for more understanding, to see more that I can't see. Because somehow I had got into the, just the sense of wonder about how much my life is better, that I'd sort of, I don't know, settled in to that. And now I'm, really curious to see what else I can see because the idea that gratitude and looking for more two different things is made up right so that was kind of a big thing for me and so I'm I'm really curious to see what happens next in service of the work in service of um, the universe and the second thing that occurs to me is um, so I I walked out of my house this morning and I found a, a duck that was dead on my lawn and um, and I realized that my relationship to death has really started to change. So, you know, I come from a world where I never discuss death. Yeah. Like death's like... <clears throat> Taboo. You know, it's... it's you bring it let's, faster. Let's just pretend we're not going to die, right? Yeah. Let's just pretend. And uh, there's... I've been seeing more and more that it's all part of it all. Mm -hmm. And I've been doing a lot of work with indigenous elders and their relationship to death's been so extraordinary to me their sort of acceptance of 
of death and birth and change and life is just all being part of the thing. And I realized, oh my God, I have made up stuff that's just excluded death from my consciousness. And this morning I saw the duck and I, first of all, that idea that something that is dead is so clearly dead is such great reminder about how the life force is in mm-hmm. everything that is alive. Yes. Um, but I, I, I looked at the duck and then decided to bury it. And I went and found a shovel and dug a hole and put the duck in, in the hole and, and, and had a little farewell to it and felt deeply, deeply moved by that. And I realized that I'm actually realizing it really only now because I didn't have any clue why I was talking about the duck. (laughs) (laughs) Because that's kind of how it works, right? I realized that I used to not even want to engage with death because I was so afraid that I would cry for the rest of my life if I started. And there's something about this understanding that is opening up a new permission, a new invitation to really cry for that duck. And I cried when I found it. I cried when I buried it. And I'm crying again. And I'm going to cry another time maybe. And then I won't cry anymore. And it's all okay. I never knew that it was okay. I thought that I should like not look at the duck just in case it unleashed some uncomfortable emotions that would make a mess of my mascara or something. You know what I mean? So there's something, there's something amazing about just understanding that it's all part of it and that it's all okay. Even when we don't understand it, that's, it changes everything. So that's kind of, that's what's up for me right now. I have no clue whether that makes any sense, but I don't really mind. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for listening to today's episode. For more information about the podcast, please go to 3pgc.org. If you're looking for more information about how to become a practitioner, or you want to be featured on the show as a new fresh voice in the principles, Send us an email at info at 3pgc.org. We'd love to hear from you. Knowing there is no end or limitation, nor are there boundaries to the human mind, have the day you deserve.